Today is Thursday, February 16, 2017. In today's Dhamma talk, I will talk about some approaches when we deal with so-called difficult persons or enemies in our metta meditation practice some approaches and also some attitudes which are helpful in dealing with these kinds of persons. When we engage in the practice of metta meditation, it is always good to, to remind ourselves of the spirit of metta or what the nature of metta is. And here are a few descriptions of what metta is and what it is not, or what a metta attitude is. I want to begin with Bhante Valpola Piananda, a Buddhist monk living in America. And he said, Metta, it is firm but not grasping. It is unshakable but not tied down. It is gentle and not hard. It is helpful but not interfering. It is dignified but not proud. It is active, not passive. Universal love is released without any restrictions. It gives calm, peace, and unity. Then here is what Sayadaw Ujanaka has said in regard to metta. He is my main teacher here in Burma. He has been my preceptor when I had ordained as a nun. <clears throat> so he said very simply, briefly, worldly love is attachment. Metta is detachment. And here I think it's important to understand that it is not kind of, of a cold or distant detachment, but it's just pointing out that when there is strong and pure metta, there is no attachment involved. In this way, it's detachment. But of course, it's a caring detachment. And then, in regard to what metta is or the nature of metta, this is from an 11-year-old girl called Tanya. She lives in Switzerland, and I assume she has never heard of metta or metta meditation. But when she was one year old, she was very sick and she needed a liver transplant, which she got, and because of that, she is still alive. And so what she says is, my biggest wish is that my family and all the people I love stay healthy and well forever. I know that this is not possible, but I wish it anyway. And I think this is really the main point of this practice. To wish another person, other people, ourselves, to be happy, to be healthy, to be well, regardless of the result. 
so having no expectations whatsoever. But just to have this genuine, pure wish, this metta attitude. So for the new yogis, those who have come for the second retreat, Sayadaw has not yet given the instructions to cultivate metta for a so-called difficult person or a person we dislike or a person we hate or a person we consider to be an enemy. But I'm sure that many of you um, have encountered difficulties in cultivating metta. Maybe it was difficult because you remembered a difficult situation with a friend or maybe a disliked person has appeared in your mind or this disliked person is coming up again and again and again. So in regard to cultivating metta for such a difficult person, this can be quite challenging because usually the habitual reaction towards such a person is one of ill will or resentment, anger, hatred. And again, one of the basic things when doing metta, cultivating uh, loving-kindness, is to understand that we develop metta for the person as a human being. Like a human being as you and me. So to see this person as a human being who wants to be happy and well, like myself, a person, a human being, who does not want suffering or pain, like myself. Or, you know, to see our shared humanity. That's what I talked about two days ago. In that talk, I also said that many religious leaders say that We are like brothers and sisters, or at least that we should regard each other as sisters and brothers. When I started to learn Burmese, I made a very interesting discovery. So when when one is addressing another person in Burmese, then usually one does not use the word you. There is such a word in the Burmese language, but it is actually very seldom used. The term one uses to address another person is always dependent on the one hand on the age of that person and also dependent on the social position. So, for example, when a lay person um, as a lay person addressing a nun or a monk, then one uses a very specific word, tabido. Well, this is referring to oneself. That's not the the using. Addressing a nun, one would say, Seale, or a monk, one would say, Ubezin, or Seado. And if 
I would address any layperson, then it's really a, a matter of if the person is older than me or younger or about the same age. So if I would address a woman who has the age maybe of my mother, one of my aunts, then even though this is a complete stranger, I still would address this woman as Adol, aunt, or Burmese also used the English word auntie. Or if I go to a shop and there is a young woman and I want to ask where is, um, where is the vegetables, then I would address her as Nima, younger sister. Or a woman that has maybe the same age or is a bit older than me, I would address her as Ama, elder sister. A man who could be in the age of one of my uncles, I would address Uli, uncle. A man who is maybe as old as myself or slightly older, Ago elder brother, or Maung, Maungli, for a younger man. Somebody in the age of my grandparents, <clears throat> although I've never met an, that elderly lady or man, I would address as Apua, grandmother, or Apu, grandfather. And so when I had to learn this, it was a bit confusing in the beginning. But as I said, you know, a very, a person I've never seen before, a, a stranger, still I would address that person as auntie or elder sister. And so in this way I came to realize then everybody in Burma just belongs to this one big family. And if one extends this to other countries, to the whole world, then actually, yeah, we are just one big family. <clears throat> so now let's go back to deal with, to talk about approaches to cultivate metta for difficult persons. Because this is an issue that comes up all the time. And so, having to deal with such a person, usually people, meditators, are very quick to put these people into the box of difficult person or enemy, disliked person. And with that, then one reduces this person just to this one particular aspect. One connects this person with that harmful action, and this means that the person and the action become inseparable. It becomes like one entity. But we can and we never should reduce a person to just one particular deed or to um, certain harmful action. This is never the whole person. This is never the whole picture. This person, maybe as a father, might be very affectionate with his son or the neighbor who talked about, who talked, um, has talked behind our back might be a very friendly salesperson. So we should understand that the person is always more than just 
one or a few harmful acts. So again here, we should ask ourselves, can we see the human being in that person? The human being who is not different from me. The human being who has basically the same hopes and fears. So to see our shared humanity. A trick that can help to see the human being and not, let's say, the cruel murderer is to imagine this person completely naked without, without any clothes. And without any clothes, a person looks much more vulnerable and much less protected. And this helps to see the fragile human being who we are all. And this helps us connect on the heart level. So in regard to harmful actions, I think it is very important to understand that with the practice of loving-kindness, we do not approve of such harmful actions. We do not approve of these actions they have done to us or that they have done to others. So when somebody has emotionally hurt us or somebody else or when somebody has injured us or other people or the being, with the practice of metta, we do not approve of this action. We do not say that this action was right or justified. But instead, with metta, we try to not react with anger or ill will, resentment. We try not to close our heart for that person. And if there can be metta, then we can actually see more clearly because we do not get caught in the trap of anger or ill will. Then we do not see the other person through the lens of the ill will or the anger. But with metta, we can see the other person as just another human being who also wants happiness just like me. So always seeing other people, other beings on this heart level, understanding that we or I myself yearn to be happy, I myself want to get away from pain and suffering Likewise, it's with other people, with other living beings. And this is why we start with ourselves, to deeply understand that this wish for happiness and well-being is deeply rooted in every living being. I mean, there is no doubt that the cruelty or the violence or the meanness or that the physical and emotional hurt, there is no doubt that these acts are blameworthy because they lack any moral integrity. But with the practice of metta meditation, we come back again and again to this basic point of 
is it possible to see this other person as a human being like me? So can we see the person apart from his or her actions? I think that's a great difficulty. In regard to uh, thoughts of ill will or hatred, aversion, Bantiji very bluntly says, Hatred is a thoughtless way of wasting one's energy. Hatred is a thoughtless way of wasting one's energy. I am sure that all of you are familiar with stories of great harm and violence. Harm or violence that has been done to you or harm, violence that has been done to others, other living beings. In the first retreat, I related the story of the teacher who was shot and how his wife chose the path of love and not the path of hatred or seeking revenge. So we might think that such noble behavior, noble behavior as not giving in to hatred, aversion, ill will. So one might think that such a noble behavior is really a very nice idea, but not very realistic or applicable. Or we might think that only very highly realized beings are capable of such noble behavior. However, this is not true. There have been and there are still many people, and some of them really very ordinary people, who were and who are able to manifest such a noble behavior. In this talk, I'm going to mention um, four quite ordinary people who took the Buddha's advice to heart. You may have heard the stories of Tibetan nuns and monks who spent many years in Chinese prisons. And many of them underwent the most atrocious forms of torture and still the heart and mind did not respond with anger or hatred, but instead with kindness and compassion towards the torturers. They had developed such pure and powerful kindness, or metta, that kindness and compassion were the only response against the actions uh, taken towards them. One Tibetan refugee, an ordinary person, was in a Chinese prison for 18 years. When he finally escaped, escaped to India, he went to Dharamsala, where he met His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he he told him that during these 18 years, he encountered a few dangers during these years. And the Dalai Lama thought that these dangers were external dangers, like threats to his life. But then the refugee said, that these dangers 
were the moments where he feared to lose compassion towards the Chinese. That when the moments when he feared that he would become caught up with anger or hatred towards the Chinese or the people who tortured him in prison. It still goes under my skin whenever I tell this story, even after having told it many times already. And here is another person who came to the conclusion that love, meta-love, is the only beneficial answer to hatred. It's a person uh, called Eti Hillesum. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation because she lived in Holland and she lived in Holland during the Second World War. She was a young Jewish artist and she said she was not really a religious person. Apparently she lived a rather bohemian uh, life. And during that time, uh, all Jews had to wear the yellow star that marked them as Jews. And they had a really, really hard time. They suffered a great deal of fear, of terror, of violence, uncertainty. And Etty wrote many letters to her friends. And it's through these letters that we know about her, because later on she died in one of the concentration camps. So in these letters to her friends, she asked herself, what can we do? What is the answer to all the hatred, the fear, and the violence? And she finally came to the realization that the victory belonged to the others, to the Nazi, when she reacted with hatred and fear. So it became clear to her that the only answer was love. When she could answer their hatred with love, then the victory was hers. The following passage from a sutta, it's from the Anguttara Nikaya, it shows one of the practical applications of loving-kindness. The advice given by the Buddha is very simple, but not so easy to do. The Buddha said, if you give birth to a grudge towards any person, cultivate loving-kindness towards that person. Thus, the grudge towards that person can be removed. Simple, practical advice. If only it were that easy. <laughs> some people, some meditators, might see the practice of metta meditation in a rather abstract way. For example, just as this general wish for the happiness and well-being of every living being. 
or meditators might see this practice as a type of formal meditation in which one is completely absorbed in an immeasurable and boundless field of loving-kindness. But in the passage that I just read, we see a simple and very specific approach to the metta practice. During the first metta retreat, Venerable Viranyani spoke of the purifying aspect of the metta practice. The purification of the heart and mind in the metta meditation practice does not happen by, a, by paying attention to the hindrances or the defilements that come up. Hindrances or defilements such as holding a grudge or ill will, resentment, anger, aversion, greed, jealousy, and so on. To pay attention to these defilements or hindrances, that's the way of vipassana meditation. There, we are mindful of these hindrances, defilements. We uh, pay close attention to them in order to understand their nature and in order to deepen our understanding of all things as they truly are. The purification of the heart and mind through the metta practice happens differently. As Venerable Viranyani had pointed out so clearly, we acknowledge a defilement or a hindrance that has arisen, let's say anger. We do not really then push it away or we do not try to suppress it. But after having acknowledged it, after just knowing that it has arisen, then we simply bring back the attention to the metta. We simply continue to cultivate loving-kindness. To cultivate loving-kindness in order to strengthen this quality of the heart and mind to really make it powerful and strong. So, as I said, we, we know that anger or aversion has come up, but it's like saying, I see you, but not now, because we understand the approach in metta meditation is different from the approach in Vipassana meditation. We know we simply, gently bring the mind back to the metta, the cultivation of loving-kindness. And so, the stronger the metta becomes, the less it leaves room for the defilements to arise. So when there is a strong habit of cultivating metta, a strong habit of living with metta, then ill will, aversion, anger will have a hard time to find a base where uh, it can grow. You know, then it's like planting a seed on a concrete slab. There is simply no way that the mango seed on a concrete slab will start to grow. So when we cultivate metta, loving-kindness, there are two effects. 
on the one hand we strengthen we we strengthen the quality of kindness friendliness benevolence so we strengthen this wholesome mental state we strengthen this beneficial uh, attitude and at the same time the cultivation of metta weakens and counteracts its opposite namely ill will aversion hatred and so on so it can weaken the dosa that is already there or it counteracts any form of dosa by having such a strong field of metta that dosa simply cannot arise so prevent it from arising now let's come back to this passage from the sutta where the buddha said if you give birth to a grudge towards any person cultivate loving kindness towards that person thus the grudge towards that person can be removed it is a characteristic of the buddha's teaching that the presence of a grudge is seen to be a problem for its subject rather than of its object that is it's a problem for the person who holds the grudge it's not a problem for the person towards whom the grudge is directed so it's not about doing something to change the other person but it's rather about to change oneself to transform one's own heart and mind on the other hand western thought or western psychology faces more outward so western psychology would rather seek to resolve the problem by finding ways um the grudge causing person might be changed or reformed or how to make him or her apologize or then this person the cause of one's grudge is somehow held accountable for his or her transgression however looking at this issue from a buddhist point of view the reason for the grudge the cause that's entirely irrelevant whether it was right or wrong the holding of a grudge is first of all doing damage to oneself in the verse it says holding a grudge so this term holding a grudge could be re- replaced with um or you know giving birth to a grudge so giving birth to aversion giving birth to ill will giving birth to aversion resentment enmity and so on be it a grudge or hatred ill will it's always an unhealthy and toxic mental state and these mental states are like poison for the heart and mind and they are nurtured and kept alive by the repetitive thoughts of aversion or ill will towards the other person you know it's like this anger eating demon 
which I mentioned also in one of my talks during the first retreat. So nurturing a grudge or anger or resentment towards another person is like drinking poison oneself and then hoping that the other person will die of it. Another person who was able to replace hatred, enmity with loving kindness is a person called Eva Kaur. She is a survivor of the concentration camp in Auschwitz. She survived, but the rest of her family, they all died. And for her to replace anger, hatred with kindness, so for her, forgiveness was an important step in, that, in this transformation. You know, we can see forgiveness as an aspect of metta. She said, I firmly believe that every person has the right to live without the pain of the past. Most of the people have a big problem with forgiveness because society asks for revenge. We have to pay respect to victims and acknowledge their painful memories. But I always ask myself if my beloved ones, who have all died, really want that I live with hatred and rage for the rest of my life. I do the practice of forgiveness for myself. Forgiveness is an act of healing myself, and it gives me a lot of power. I call it a miraculous remedy. It does not cost anything. It works, and there are no harmful side effects. The Buddha had treated a grudge or ill will anger, any form of dosa, as an affliction that needs to be healed for the sake of our own well-being. And the antidote or the medicine to this is loving-kindness and preferably in massive doses. So seen in this light, loving-kindness includes or encompasses forgiveness. When there is pure, genuine metta for a difficult person or for an enemy, then there is also forgiveness. As I said, having a metta attitude towards a so-called difficult person does not mean that we approve of the harmful act that the person has done. It does not mean that we acquiesce to what the other person has done. It simply means that we do not let our heart and mind be infested with dosa, any kind of dosa. I think theoretically we all understand this, 
it makes sense, doesn't it? But then when it comes to practice, then we realize that in some cases it's not that easy. And that's why we are here. That's why we engage in this practice. Now I want to relate another encounter with a metta person whose strong and powerful metta left a lasting impression on me. It's about the Venerable Mahagosananda. Venerable Mahagosananda was a Cambodian monk He had to flee his country during the time of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot and he became a well-known peace activist. He also organized these famous peace marches in Cambodia after the fall of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. My first encounter with him was just 20 years ago when I was at the Forest Meditation Center in Mobi, north of Yangon, a branch center of the Chamyeyeta Meditation Center. At that time, Sayadaw Uindaka was the abbot of that center and myself and Mimi were there to take care of the foreigners who came to meditate and I was learning to translate uh, interviews and Dhamma talks. My Burmese was not very good at that time. So one day after lunch we got a call from the main center in Yangon and they said that a foreign monk would come out to the forest center and that he would give a Dhamma talk to all the yogis, Burmese and foreign yogis. They couldn't say from which country or what his name was. And so we waited and when the car came, it was Venerable Mahagosananda. I was pleased, happy to see him, but already after that call came, I got so anxious because then Sayato Uindaka said, and you, Do Ariyanyani, you translate this talk from English into Burmese. And as I said, my Burmese was really not good. And so I was very anxious. How can I possibly do it? No, it's impossible. And if I had only known what his talk would be about, then I could have prepared myself. And, 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 and my heart was going boom, 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 when my knees were shaking. And so there he comes, Venerable Mahagosananda. And everything had been prepared in the meditation hall. Burmese yogis, foreign yogis were there sitting. There was the throne for Venerable Mahagosananda. And I sat at the foot of the throne, Mimi next to me as my kind of safety belt. (laughs) And so I sat there and still trembling and my heart going boom, 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 boom. And then Venerable Mahagosananda started the talk with the recitation of the Namotasa, just as we recited here. Namotasa, and so on. Three times. And you need to understand that the Burmese pronounce the Pali slightly different. So they would say, Namo Tata Bhagavato Arahato Tama Tambautata. I mean, when Venerable Mahakosananda recited that, the Burmese 
yogis must have understood what he did. But somehow I gave the Burmese translation, so I went, Namo Tata Bhagavato. And what was amazing, within this short time, my whole nervousness settled down, no more shaking. And by the end of the three time reciting it, I was sitting there completely at ease, calm, peaceful. And it was no more an issue whether I would be able to do a good translation or not. So then I simply did the best I could, asking Mimi every now and again, what's the Burmese word um, for this? So it was really amazing to feel this strong metta presence. You know, it was almost palpable. <clears throat> Venerable Mahakosananda, for his many years of practice, he knew very well that the real enemy is within. He knew that the actual danger is the harmful, the unwholesome thoughts, emotions, mental states, that they create so much harm and trouble and misery to us. So during the regime of the Khmer Rouge under Pol Pot, thousands, hundreds of thousands of Cambodians left the country. They fled, uh, many to them, to Thailand. And there were these huge refugee camps uh, on the Thai border. And all these refugees, you know, they had lost members of their family, their fathers, their brothers, or their spouses, their mothers, their children. You know, it was a real genocide that happened in Cambodia. And also their homes were destroyed, monasteries were destroyed, temples and villages. And Buddhism had been desecrated by Pol Pot. And so one day, Venerable Mahagosananda went to one of these huge refugee camps and it was announced that on the following day there would be a Buddhist ceremony led by Venerable Mahagosananda. And because Buddhism had been desecrated by Pol Pot, people wondered if anybody would go. But then the next day, 10,000 refugees, almost everybody in that refugee camp, went to the place where the ceremony was going to take place. They had built a little stage with a chair on it, and Venerable Mahakosananda sat there up uh, on the stage. And he sat there for some time in silence. And then he started to chant those recitations that usually mark the beginning of a ceremony. And when people heard that, they just started weeping. They had been through so much difficulties, so much sorrow, so much cruelty, that just to hear the familiar sounds of these chants felt so precious to them. And then, of course, everybody wondered what the Venerable Mahagosananda would go, was, what he would go to say. What could one possibly say 
to this group of people. And then what he did next was to begin to repeat a verse from the Dhammapada. And it was the verse, Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. Over and over he chanted this verse. And we should should remember these refugees were people who had as much cause to hate as anyone on earth. And yet, as he sat there repeating this verse, people started to join the recitation. Hundreds and then thousands of people joined Venerable Mahagosananda repeating this verse. Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. So having Venerable Mahagosananda as a strong and beloved leader, the people could join these words. They must have known intuitively that this was true and that this was the only way to heal their deep wounds. Of course, their rational mind still wanted to be angry with these soldiers, Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge. Maybe the intellectual mind still wanted to take revenge. But on a deeper level, on the heart level, they must have understood that this was true. Another encounter I had with Venerable Mahagosananda was in 2005, so about 12 years ago, two years before he passed away. At that time, I was teaching meditation at the Forest Refuge, which is part of the Inside Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, the USA. While I was teaching there for one month, a friend uh, invited me to come along to Venerable Mahagosananda's birthday party. Well, not an actual party, (laughs) birthday ceremony. It was his 76th birthday. Not so far from the IMS, there is a small Cambodian temple, and by that time, Venerable Mahagosananda lived there in that temple. And at that time, he already suffered from Alzheimer dementia. So for this birthday celebration, they had put up a big tent in the garden, had a little stage, and Venerable Mahagosananda sat up there on a chair. And during the whole celebration, he was just sitting there. It was other monks who did recitations, uh, who gave a speech. And then at the end of that ceremony was a very touching thing they did. They put a bowl with water on the table in front of Venerable Mahagosananda, and he put the hands over this bowl with the water. And then one person, um, or each person who was present, would go and take some rose petals, which were in another bowl, take some, and let them fall on his hands. 
and in Cambodian tradition, this is wishing long life, good health. And so when everybody had filed uh, through and that did that ceremony was finished. And then this friend said, now I want to introduce you to a Cambodian lady. He took me and took me to her and she told me her story, which was unbelievable, so atrocious, I could hardly believe it. So she told me that in Cambodia, during that time, she was thrown into a pit with where there were many dead people in that pit, but she was alive, thrown into dead. And then they covered it, covered them with earth. So she was there, buried, alive, and she said, then the devas came and trinkled water into my mouth. And somehow later on, she could free herself and get out. But then the soldier saw that she was not dead, that she had not died. And so with a big knife, they cut out two big pieces of flesh, one on her thigh, one on her buttock, thinking that she would get an infection and then die of it because she had no access to any medical care. And she said, you know, at night the devas came and treated my wounds. She didn't die. She didn't get an infection. Later on, she was able to flee to Thailand. And from there, then she moved to the USA. And when she told me her story, you know, I realized there was no hatred, no anger in her voice or in her gestures. And when she finished telling me her story, she gave me a big hug. And this was the most intense and the most loving hug that I had ever received in my life. It was simply overwhelming. And so then I realized that it was obvious she had taken Venerable Mahagosananda's advice to heart. She had replaced the hatred by love with metta because she, she realized that only metta can heal the deep wounds of hatred. And she must have also understood that it was for her own sake, for her own mental and physical well-being. She had understood that there was basically no other choice than letting go of the hatred or enmity and that she needed to fill her heart and mind with loving-kindness. Whether we call it metta or forgiveness, a kind, a loving, a forgiving heart has the power to appease the burning fires of anger, aversion, hatred. It has the power to appease the burning fires of all forms of dosa. To end again the Buddha's advice, if you give birth to a grudge towards any person, cultivate loving-kindness towards that person. Thus, the grudge towards that person can be removed.
So may we all be able to remember and to follow the Buddha's advice. May we all be able to manifest our metta by actions of body, speech and mind for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.